got your Bibles, I hope you do, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We just put it in drive and keep going through the, our letter to the, Paul's letter to the, the Romans. And we are on verse 18 today. And just so you are sort of aware, whether you're watching online or, or here, sort of where we are going, um, we're going to be, we're just starting a, a section. We're going to be working through verses 18 to 32. And we're going to be looking at some heavy subjects, but essential subjects, first things in, in Paul's estimation of both on God's wrath and also man's depravity. And if you got your notes, if you're not, they're back there on the blue table. You'll see at that title head, um, what we're following all the way through is gospel need. Uh, we believe that that grabs what Paul is trying to make sure that we understand this morning. So what I'd like to do as you stand to your feet is I'm going to go back and grab verse 16 and 17 because I want us to understand that this is not necessarily a new thought. This is a connected thought. You remember the verse numbers and chapters are things we add to help us find places, but they're not, they weren't there in the beginning. They're just, this is a letter and the thought continues. So stand with me out of reverence for his word. And I'm going to begin with verse 16. I'm going to read down to verse 18. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. God, we can only pray as Isaiah prayed in Isaiah chapter 6. That we are an unclean people and we live amongst unclean people. And we have come today to see and to hear from you. And we can only do that, Lord, through the blood of Jesus Christ that covers us right now. So that we can boldly come in before the throne of grace and ask you to teach us. Maybe things that we have discounted or ignored or neglected. Lord, even if it's hard for us to hear, help us to understand the glory of the gospel through the work of your Son that removed wrath and brought us blessing. We want to hear from you today, Lord. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So it may to you as you as you look at your Bible, they give you these nice subtitles that are super helpful. And it, it could seem like all of a sudden we're celebrating the gospel of God and talk about how to share our faith. And all of a sudden on a dime, Paul says, Here comes the wrath of God. Like, what in the world? 
But you see, until we understand the wrath of God, we'll never really get excited about the grace of God. Yes, we will neglect it, even feel entitled to it. But what the wrath of God helps us understand is exactly what we deserve and all people deserve and what we are entitled to. This is why Paul's not ashamed. This is not the least bit disconnected. This is not the least bit a new thought. This is all about the gospel. Paul is not ashamed to declare the gospel to all types of people for a particular reason. This wrath of God is motivating him. It is propelling him to the neighbors and the nations. Matter of fact, I'm going to say this over and over this morning. There is two things that's been revealed. Righteousness and wrath. Righteousness and wrath. If you're making notes, that's something to be on your paper. Righteousness and wrath. Both these things have been revealed. And if you are a Christian who's walked very long, I know as a pastor we get questions and, and, and sometimes text messages and asking things. Is proof pudding? That we have celebrated verse 16 and 17 and neglected verse 18. To ignore God's wrath is to ignore that the cross is not a pretty cross we hang around our neck or get tattooed on our body. It's a bloody cross. Jesus is not somebody who just fixes my felt needs. Who loves me with no judgment and no expectation. A Jesus who's just glad I'm on his team. That Jesus does not exist. And if we embrace such nonsense, it is precisely because we have neglected the doctrine of the wrath of God and the judgment of God. Paul starts here. This is where he starts. As he's given us his introduction, now he's beginning to lay the foundation. And what he lays first is that the righteousness of God and the wrath of God have been revealed. Paul's going to paint the night sky. I know you've heard this illustration, but it's true. It's how you have to see this. Paul's going to paint the night sky dark with not only the wrath of God, but with our sinfulness, our depravity, so that we can appreciate the stars of His grace. Why is Paul so confident? Look at verse 17. That only those who live by faith will live. Maybe that's a new thought for you. Only those who live by faith will live. And in other words, what Paul is setting forth is what we have seen all through Scripture. There's only two groups of people. There are only two paths. There's a wide way. There's a narrow way. There are those who live by faith and there are those who do not. And there's nowhere in between. There's no middle road. No other way. Verse 17, the end of verse 17 is a parallel passage to Habakkuk 2.4. Let me just read it for you. Habakkuk 2.4 says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. You see that? Two groups of people. The one whose soul is puffed up, who is not right, and one who is right. And lives by their faith. So we can't talk about the wrath of God without talking about the atonement of God. And we're going to talk about that again at the end. But why this way? 
Why did God have to punish our sins on Christ? Because without atonement, there is no life. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, oh yes, the righteous shall live by faith, says verse 17. Yes, says verse 18, but nobody else shall live. So it's that soberness right from the word go this morning. So let me just show you something uh, explicit on the wrath of God. So that you know we're not contriving anything this morning. Let's turn to Revelation 14. Revelation 14. Look at verse 9. If there is no atonement, then whoever does not receive the atonement by faith will drink what the Bible calls the cup. Almost brought that cup from last couple weeks in, except that cup is too small of a representation for the wrath of God. But this isn't. God's word isn't. God's word is clear. So let's read it. Revelation 14 and verse 9. I'm going to read it slow. Let's let, you, let it soak in with you. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, verse 10, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. There's only two names. It's the name of Christ that you are marked with, or it's His name. And there's only two destinations. And hell is not a place where God is not. Look at the text. Hell is the place where the full wrath of God poured full strength into the cup of His anger is. It is a place of eternal conscious torment. This is the wrath of God. You see, the wrath of God reminds us, it corrects us, it even comforts us, it warns us, it promises us. But here's what he's saying, this staggering claim this morning, the wrath of God has already been revealed. That there is, and I know we're going to have to think this morning, that there is not only the eternal wrath of God that Revelation 14 is describing, there is the temporal wrath of God that's here right now. It's here right now. This is the picture of a dam that is 10,000 miles wide and 10,000 miles high. And those that we love that are outside of Christ stand at the foot of that dam. And the promise is one day he is going to pull down the dam. But right now this dam is being vented. So let's understand what the wrath of God is. I tried to put that in my main idea. That's the image I want you to come with this morning. God's wrath is the release of God's stored up holy anger against everything that contradicts or defies his holy character. We could put it this way. If you think about your three circles, what we are talking about is that first arrow that's called sin. 
When we willingly leave God's design, we end up in brokenness. But what about that sin? Is sin bad just because of what it produces in us? Well, what is God's wrath anyway? Well, let's understand what it's not. What is God's wrath not? It's not like human anger. It's not uncontrolled anger. It's not wild, emotional, uncontrolled outburst. It's not a person who's had a bad day and it comes home and kicks their dogs and sends their kids to their room and it's not that. That's us. It's us when we have a bad day. <laughs> Sometimes we're like just these tired, irritable people who come home and everybody in the family says, let's just leave him alone. <laughs> just let him alone. Why? You don't want to experience their wrath. That's not God. And we have no right, and we sin when we do, to impute our sinful responses on God. We get how we should act from Him. So what's the difference? Even on our best day, on our best day, when we're responding in a holy, righteous anger, and there is such a thing, and I know we've all felt it, isn't it true that even in that moment, at the best you can do, there's still selfishness in there? That thing is still tainted by sin. Why? Because we are still connected to sin. Our minds are still in sin. But listen, on the other hand of this, God's anger is governed. It is controlled. Its vent is, flows out in a vented, controlled way because it flows from His sinless character. And that's a big difference. So what is it not? It's not like human anger, but neither, neither is it a fear for Christians. So I'm not here today, despite what it, someone might receive. I am not here trying to scare believers into obedience. Why do I not do that? Because the Bible says we don't need to do that. Because the wrath has been removed. And now we're under grace. I need simply to show you the grace. And you will obey. And if not, the Bible says you need to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. It is no fear for Christians but listen, here's the point this morning. Neither are we immune to the effects of the sinful world we live in. Now, I'm not trying to give God a cop out here, and you'll hear it. But listen, we live in a sinful world, a world that has fallen willingly. That's our first circle and our second circle, right? It's fallen, it's sinful. Our bodies are broken. They show the effects of a sinful world. But we don't live by fear, even with that reality, because God has not destined us to wrath. Here's what I want you to also understand it's not. The wrath of God is not merely a past thing in the Old Testament, nor is it simply a future thing. One of the problems people get into when they read apocalyptic literature is simply saying that the wrath of God is only in the future. That's exactly the opposite of what Romans 1 is saying. The temporal wrath of God is now. Verse 18, look at it. It is revealed. 
So it's not a past thing. It's not just a present thing. It's not just a future thing. It's all of those. God's wrath has been revealed. It is being revealed. It will be revealed in its fullness. So what does this word mean anyway? We get the word, or it comes from the word orgate. What that means is to grow ripe for something. And it can be used in multiple different ways depending on the context. It can be used in a very evil, sinful way in a human context. But in God's context, it is this picture of something like that dam I described. Something that is building. That is filling it up to a brim. That's why he uses this picture of a cup. That, is, that he tips in just in measure in this life. But in the next will be tipped completely over. God's wrath is real. It is severe. It is personal. And it's a present reality. Temporal wrath is a foretaste of eternal wrath. In other words, you can see it this way. And I know this is hard for us. But temporal wrath is actually a mercy that points us to something greater. Just like his blessings in this life point to something that is greater. Romans 2. We're going to look at this, but I want you to see the contrast. Because in chapters 1, he's going to deal with temporal wrath. In chapter 2, he's going to deal with eternal wrath. I want you to see it. Romans chapter 2 and verse 5. Speaking to a different group of people here, and we'll get to that when we get to it. But notice this. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So do you see that? There's a day of wrath that's coming. And that what people are doing, what people are rejecting, what people are practicing is storing up for something for that day. Revelation chapter 16. Listen to what it says. Revelation 16, verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you have brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch the people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. So you see, as God pulls out both His temporal wrath, and even in the future, it will only make their hearts harder. But it, it's, here's what He's saying in verse 18. Now back to verse 18. These things, this wrath has already been revealed. That word revealed is the word we get apocalypse from. It's the revelation of God's righteousness. And at the same time, the revelation of His wrath. 
If you look at verse 16 and 17, you can see the gospel is what reveals the righteousness of God. But it's not the only thing that does, and we'll see that in a little bit. But it is clear. This is why we preach it and teach it. It's why I'm preaching and teaching it today and over the next few weeks. Because without it, you will not be able to see the fullness of His righteousness and the amazing nature of His grace. But listen what wrath is not. Wrath is not an attribute of God. It's not the same as His love and His holiness. It is a reaction, a God reaction to all that is sinful. Knowing God, J.I. Packer, he said, Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good, be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil to his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil which is a necessary part of moral perfection that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. So what is God's wrath? Wrath is a detesting of all that is evil. Look at verse 18. His wrath comes against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness, what is, it seems pretty clear what that is, but let's make sure we understand the two aspects. It is ungodly to not give God what he does deserve. Right? It is ungodly to not give God the respect and the honor, and the glory that He deserves. But it is also ungodly when we live in a way that is wrong, that does not reflect Him. Unrighteousness means injustice. God lays out a standard for how we should live before Him and before other people, and we have blown it in both ways. So wrath is a detesting by God, of all that is evil. But yet we have to deal with this, this cliche that we always hear, don't we? I mean, don't we have to get that out of the way? Because how many times have you heard it? Yes, pastor, but you know, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. You see, this is what I mean. When nobody preaches on something, we come up with these things that we put on coffee cups and t-shirts that have no place in Scripture. Let me just read one. I would challenge you. Just read the first 50 Psalms and see what the Bible says about that cliche. But let me just read you one. Psalms 5 verse 4. It's not in your notes. It says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, I don't need to exposit that, do I? That's explicit. And yet I understand there is an element of truth in everything that is wrong oftentimes. And there is a distinction <clears throat> between the way that God deals with the sin and the way God deals 
with the sinner. There is a distinction between the way God deals with the sin and God deals with the sinner. But this cliche is wrong and it must be abandoned. Romans 3.36 says, If those who do not believe, the wrath of God remains on them. And you do not help somebody by telling them that God just hates your sin, but you don't have a problem with Him. No, no, the, the news today between the arrow that leads from God's design to our brokenness is not that you just sinned and you're going to mess up your life, but you have sinned and God is angry with your sin and He is angry with you. That is the message, brothers and sisters. And unless we paint it as dark as it is, when we bring the cross up, everybody just goes, eh. We must understand God is angry with sinners. And that is from the Old Testament to the New. So then wrath is God's response to sin and His holy response to sin. Again, reading Packer, every facet of God's nature and every aspect of His character may be properly be spoken of as holy just because it is His the core of the concept, however, is God's purity, which cannot tolerate any form of sin and thus calls sinners to constant self-abasement in His presence. And He cites Isaiah 6. When you get in the presence of God, you are more aware of your need for mercy. Wrath is here what the text is saying because sin cannot exist in the presence of God what dwells in you as believers God does whose world is this it's his world this is good news I know sometimes it's hard to see that this is good news as many of us have lived in the effect of a sin-sick world. And what I am telling you today is God is here. And His wrath is here. And His justice is here. And He saw it when that happened. Because what happened against you was not only against you, it was ultimately against Him. And He was not sleeping that day when it happened. He's filling up the cup. Wrath is an outworking, you see, of God's justice. God's justice is not His justice. It is a holy justice. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Wherever it may be found, it does not matter who it is. That's what he goes on to say, isn't it? God is not a respecter of persons. Deuteronomy 32.4 The rock... His work is perfect, for all His ways are just. And yet we can hear it, can't we? That's not fair, is it? I, I, don't, I don't feel like that's fair. Well, let's just wait till we get to verses 19 to 32. He's going to work that out for us. God's justice demands that God deals with sin. That's our point. But also, wrath is a fruit of God's holiness. Remember, say it's not a... It's not an attribute. It's a fruit. So we go back to a different illustration than just the dam building up. We go back to God and understand that there is a root that produces a fruit. And in God's root 
of who he is is holy. Everything else that comes out of him, everything else that he is and everything else that he does is holy. And so his wrath is a holy wrath because God's holiness is in his essence. It is this essence between light and darkness that John painted for us. 1 John 1, 5. 1 John 1, 5. That's what it says. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. So Eastern religions are wrong. There is no yin and yang in God. Light and darkness has never mixed. It didn't mix from creation, and it will not mix in your life. And one day, God is going to separate it, brothers and sisters. This is the message. It was what He's doing in our life, even as Christians, when we repent and we put our faith in Christ through the gospel, and He begins to sanctify us. Isn't that what He is doing? Painfully so sometimes, separating that which won't mix with God's glory and His blessing in our life. Listen, God's holiness deserves our worship. His holiness deserves our worship. Deuteronomy 4.24 The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God will not tolerate idolatry. It fills up the dam. Psalms 99.9 says this, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain. For the Lord your God is holy. (laughs) So wrath comes out as a fruit of that. God deserves our worship. And listen, God demands our obedience. Remember God's design when we present the gospel? Those worship and obedience are two things that happen without hindrance in the garden. And it's what we willingly left in sin to worship things that we create, which is he's going to get to, and to do it our own way. Would a God who is not troubled by sin be worthy of your worship? Would a God that looks like a God that these, these, these folks that say God is a God of love, God is a God of love, you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means he just loves, you know. So God doesn't get angry over sin. Oh, no, God doesn't get angry. That'd be bad. So they're going, is, he, is that God? That God really worthy of your worship? Is that really a livable faith? It's not the God of the Bible. This flows out of him. God's wrath happens when God's holiness confronts the rebellion of his image bearers. What comes out of him, the fruit that produces in him, is the wrath of God. The price of diluting this message, the price of diluting God's wrath, is a diminishing of God's holiness. We must see this 
because God's word said it's true. Doesn't matter what we like. It only matters that this is a critical to understand the God that we serve. Where there is no sin, there is no wrath, but there will always be love, which brings up the most important point understanding wrath. Wrath is an expression of God's love, wrath is an expression of His love. Holy anger is the other, other side of the coin to holy love. You don't have one without the other. And again, 1 John is clear. I want you to see this, so make sure you turn to that passage, whether it's your paper Bible or your phone. 1 John 4, 8. I want you to see this because this is critical to grab the connection with the gospel here. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone, you there? Say amen. amen. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's good. We like that, right? Amen. And this, the love of God has made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Amen, right? Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Everybody say propitiation. propitiation. What is propitiation? It is the wrath-removing substitute of Jesus Christ for you and for me. That is the love of God. The love of God is that God looks down at hell-deserving, wrath-deserving, justice-deserving sinners, and He sends His own Son to remove the wrath, to bring His grace and His mercy. Now, that's good news. But listen, how dare we act like, if I'm having coffee with you next week, and you say, you know, Pastor, I found out that my wife or my husband was cheating on me. And I was sitting there going, oh my goodness. <laughs> well, brother, what in the world? How are you doing? He's just like, you're just not going, you know, nobody's perfect. Like, eh, you know, it's okay. You know, they're under a lot of pressure. It's just the way it is. It's okay. No big deal. Matter of fact, I'm a little hungry. Let's go get some, I'm thinking we'll get me a muffin. Uh-uh, No. What would you think if a person says that we love each other, but yet when that happens, we just respond with apathy? Once, this is a quote. The opposite to wrath is not love, but indifference. You write that down. The opposite of wrath is not love. The opposite of wrath is indifference. It is apathy. And this God that's being presented behind some pulpits, even in this town, it's not the God of the Bible. It's an apathetic God that doesn't give a rip when something bad happens to His people to defies His name. And that's simply just not the God of the Bible. It's not who God is. And it's not why He sent His Son to remove the wrath he removed the wrath precisely because wrath exists. Amen? The love of God then. And I can, 
There's a tension here. And, I, and if you don't feel it, you're not understanding. Right? I want you to feel it. This tension between the wrath of God and the mercy of God. Psalms 23 paints this picture of God as this quiet waters. But Psalms 32, 6 paints God as a mighty rushing waters. So inside of God's economy, there is both the gentle streams and the raging river. So, why God's wrath? I just want you to see a glimpse of this. I'm just going to, because my time's running short, I'm just going to touch these things because we're going to look at them in depth in the weeks to come. But I want you to at least know what's coming. It says God's righteousness has been revealed. And we have suppressed the truth, so God's righteousness has also been revealed. How, is that, how does that work in actual life? God's righteousness has been revealed through your conscience. Verse 19 is going to deal with that. That's what that is saying is that God's righteousness is not simply revealed through special revelation of the gospel through His Word. It is also revealed through the fact that people have an intuitive understanding of what is right and wrong, and they have to suppress the truth to get over it. And they never completely get over it. Just try to do to their children what they do into yours. And they'll immediately find it, because it's there. God's righteousness has been revealed in that. And so is His wrath. It's written revealed in creation. This will be dealt with. That God has revealed His glory and His majesty in the things that He created. And man, just like the first man, has snubbed his nose at the Creator and built up other things to worship instead of Him. God's righteousness has been revealed and so is His wrath in that. His righteousness and His wrath is displayed in the consequences of life. We call this principle sowing and reaping. We can see it. The physical consequences of what is doing what is right and doing what is wrong. That this world is is under a curse. The earth is under a curse and man is under a curse. From sickness to addiction, life is full of brokenness. We've been talking about that, haven't we? The temporal anger of God is revealed in all sorts of things according to Scripture, not according to Stephen. From illness to disease, to famine, to plagues, to disorders, to storms, to earthquakes, almost any natural activity the Bible has ascribed to the temporal wrath of God. Ezekiel 7.14 says, They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but none goes to battle, for my wrath is upon their multitude. The sword is without, pestilence and famine are within. He who is in the field dies by the sword, and him who is in the city, famine and pestilence devour. Verse 22 says, I will turn my face from them, and they shall profane my treasured place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. The result of God's people turning their back on their God was His temporal wrath that turned them over to do what they want and then sent the enemies in to conquer them. It's the whole story of the Jewish people and life. But we all know this, right? 
God has revealed himself in death because haven't you lost someone close to you? I ask you, us that's been through that, did that feel like something natural to you? No. There's nothing natural about death. Death was not part of God's created design. Death was a part of the curse, a consequence of sin. Death is universal. The wages of sin is death. The righteousness of God and the wrath of God have been displayed in history. Biblical history and extra-biblical history. From Cain to the flood, to Babel, to Sodom, to Saul, to David, to Nebuchadnezzar, and the whole story of Israel, God's wrath has been revealed and God's righteousness has been revealed and man suppressed it, mocked it, and outright rejected it. Extra-biblical history. I thought about that the other day. I was even thinking about the ruins when we go to Honduras. Go to Honduras, you can go through a ruins and see a people who no longer exist. And what you'll be keenly aware, like them and the Aztecs, is that everywhere you turned around, there was altars where they even sacrificed their own people and their own children, just like they did in the Old Testament. And listen, the wrath of God fell, and we, we can only read about them in the history books. Praise the Lord. God's righteousness and His wrath was revealed through Christ. Through Christ. Not only in His teaching. Old John the Baptist come talking about it, didn't he? I love this quote. Do you know what is wrong with the world? Do you know what is wrong with America? Do you know what is wrong with Democrats? Do you know what is wrong with the Republicans? Do you know what is wrong with everybody? It is their defiant rejection of God. If you reject God, you will be turned over to go your own way. Sin makes you stupid. Sin leads you to make worse decisions that you could ever possibly make with your life. There is only one cure for sin. There is only one way to sort out what is going on in this world. Ultimately, there is only one cure. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we struggle with the wrath of God, let us come to this moment because it is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ that the righteousness and the wrath of God is revealed. Romans 3.24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous, justified by His grace as a gift through whom redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a wrath-removing substitute by his, son, by his blood to be received by faith. That is the gospel. That God sent His own Son to remove everything that we have been talking about that's coming in the future and give us hope in the presence by removing wrath and bringing His blessing. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. It says, For God has not destined us. Now, who's us? Those who live by faith. For God has not destined us to wrath, but are delivered from it. God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation 
through Jesus Christ our Lord, who died for us, verse 10, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might what? Live with him. That's the promise. I can't say it better than D.A. Carson. I hope you've heard this before. God in his professions must be wrathful against his rebel image bearers, for they have offended him. God in his perfection must be loving toward his rebel image bearers, for he is that kind of God. These themes barrel along through redemptive history unresolved until they come to a resounding climax in the cross. Do you wish to see God's love? Look at the cross. Do you wish to see God's wrath? Look at the cross. It is the cross that explains these things. So what today? Are you grateful for the patience of God? Are you grateful for it? Listen to this. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me. I want you to see it. Probably on, on my short list for the most, for the worst interpreted passage in the Bible that people use all the time and never bother to study the context. But the joy, the comfort of any certain passage is to understand it in the context. 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10. Listen to this goodness. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done will be exposed. There are two promises today here for believers. For believers. This text is written to believers. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. He is patient toward you. The you is believers. Look at the first chapter, the first verse. He is patient towards you. He's not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. The Lord will save every person He desires to save. It's good news today. (laughs) Is this heavy? Yes, it's heavy. But this is the promise when people snarl and tip their noses and say, y'all people have been celebrating Jesus coming back for 2,000 years. And it said, Absolutely we have. And praise the Lord He didn't come back 50 years ago or 30 years ago or last week for some of us. The Lord is patient. He is using this time to gather His own into His family. But here's the second promise. The day will come. The day of the Lord will come. And when it comes, God's not coming holding His sheep. He's coming holding a sword. And he's coming to make all things right. The question is, what is, that, what is that doing for you this morning? What is that doing to you? How is God's wrath motivating you? We can have all kinds of responses. From that's the most ridiculous thing to that's not the God I serve to, well, that sounds good, but I don't know what to do with it. But here's the point of why he puts it where he puts it in Romans 1. It's motivating us toward mission. It motivates us toward mission. There is an already and a not yet to the wrath of God. What we are experiencing right now 
and what will happen in the future. As I sat in my office just a few minutes ago, I just pulled up on my computer God's wrath on my Bible study program and over 200 passages popped up on the screen. All through the Bible, over 200 times. And I just begin to just scroll through it and say, God's wrath, man's wrath, temporal wrath, eternal wrath. Just begin to do that. And you would be sobered to find out how many of those passages is talking about temporal. And so you're sitting there going, what does that have to do? Because this gospel that your pastors and your elders Felt like oh, we, you have to know how to share the gospel. Why is that? Was that such? Why is it such? Why are you going still talking about it in our small groups? Because we see these people we love standing for for a dam of God's wrath, ten thousand times wide, ten thousand times deep, and unless they repent, one day that dam is going to break, and there is no second chance. And today is the day of salvation, and you are the person He put in their path. So share the gospel with them. That's your responsibility. Nothing else is. It motivates you. It's motivating him that even though Paul does not know that he will soon go to his death, he's already planning his next mission trip. Are you planning yours? Because you're going to work, not Monday. I hope you got the day off. But you'll be going Tuesday. So we're all going on a mission trip. Some of us in school. Mission trip. <laughs> work. Hobbies. You enjoy golfing or fishing or hunting, not simply because it makes you feel good and you experience God's glory when you do. That's part of it. But because it puts you around people that you would not be around any other way. So understand this truth and then do what Jesus did. Go outside the camp to bring the gospel to bear in their life. This is how God's wrath should motivate us. So now let's worship. Lord, we thank you for letting us look at such a subject. And now we have the opportunity to respond. Lord, I pray that we would not be in a hurry to respond to you today. Lord, we need to sing of your glory and your salvation. We need to be in awe of your grace. We need to come to the tables and remember the high cost of what Jesus did for us. And so, Lord, whether we respond through our offering or whether we respond through the Lord's Supper, may both your justice and your love fence the table for us. If we are in Christ, let us... Plead the blood of Christ and come to the table. But if we are not, let us stay in our seats and repent and put our faith in Jesus so that we might come and enjoy you. That's what we want to do now. And so, Lord, let us, let us just relish in the fact that you care for us and that you're not apathetic towards your children. That you love us with a love it is unfathomable. It's 
displayed in both your mercy and your wrath. And we thank you, Lord, that you promise that you will never pour your wrath out on your children, for we are in the family. And it is your family who stands up and sings now for the glory of your name and in the name of your son we pray. Amen.